Welcome to Dear Human Resources. In each episode, you'll hear about current HR topics and trends from experts, both practitioners and researchers, with the goal of giving you an insider's look at human resources. Our guest today is Rachel Sassaman. Rachel is the Chief Administrative Officer at Mercy Urgent Care and Occupational Medicine in Asheville, North Carolina. She's also the Vice President of the Board of Directors of the Western North Carolina Medical Managers Association. She graduated with a master's degree in HR from Western Carolina University. Welcome to Dear Human Resources podcast, Rachel. Thanks for having me. Sure. So today our conversation is going to focus on how your organization has adapted to the COVID-19 pandemic crisis. So could you tell us how COVID-19 has impacted you as the chief administrative officer and the people in your organization? I have to begin by saying it would be very difficult to overstate the impact that COVID-19 has had on our organization as a healthcare facility. And as everybody knows, healthcare is on the front lines of this pandemic. So even in optimal circumstances where we would have had months to plan in advance, it would have still been an incredibly disruptive event. But as the circumstances were, with limited time to prepare for a tidal wave, the likes of which none of us, myself, my colleagues, uh, our medical providers have ever seen in our professional lifetimes. Uh, To say that we felt ill-prepared is a bit of an understatement. And again, you can't overstate how much of a change uh, this had on our organization. And in unusual ways, in the beginning, what most people expected was that we would have had an immediate surge of visits, that there would have been lines of patients and not nearly the manpower to treat them. What actually happened was quite the opposite. We had a swift and drastic decline in patient visits, so much so that we had staff who, uh, and this is really, I think, one of the the cruel side effects of the pandemic, staff who were uh, dealing with a new virus and and uncertain of how dangerous it it would be for themselves or how well protected they were, even with the protective equipment that they had, how much it would, uh, or whether or not they would have a job um, because of of the few visits that we had and, and the period of time that that was the case. On the administrative side, there were drastic changes to the way we we did business, the, the things that we focused on, of course. And one of the initial focuses was on financial relief. As you can imagine, if, if you suddenly, if your healthcare facility and you suddenly don't have patients, that caused a, a drastic financial shortfall for the organization. And as a service organization, our greatest uh, percentage of, of planned expenses, of course, is in personnel, You're, you are people providing service. So it it prompted a swift shift to looking for all of the sources of financial assistance that, that could sustain us through this dark period, as we call it. And I have to say, in the midst of figuring out precautions and doing everything in our power to protect our staff, 
another cruel side effect of the pandemic was being in a situation where the supply chain for protective equipment had been completely disrupted. So all of a sudden, the just-in-time sourcing for materials was very uh, unhelpful because you could no longer source gloves, N95 masks, um, shields, goggles, lab coats, and, and other, or gowns rather, and, and other PPE that is absolutely necessary to protect our staff against the pandemic who were on the front lines and were encountering, of course, COVID positives every single day. So uh, from an operational standpoint, you know, I've, I've mentioned this already, the supply chain disruption alone was one challenge. The other challenge in the beginning was being able to find enough tests and tests that were reliable enough that, that we could be comfortable providing them to the public. And after a couple of months of this uh, drastic drop-off in visits, the way I've described it is a ship listing uh, in, in response to a major wave. Initially, our visits tanked, the ship listed the other way, and all of a sudden we saw a surge of patients around the summertime. And again, uh, the challenge there was making sure that we had adequate protective equipment for our staff. Having enough staff at that point mm-hmm. and, and just uh, trying to uh, <laughs> provide the service at that point uh, that was predominantly and still is COVID testing. Right, that makes sense. So, uh, Rachel, the uh, for the listeners who are not familiar with uh, Mercy Urgent Care, can you just give us a, a quick uh, rundown uh, of the number of employees you have, part-time, full-time, and what kind of service you provide? So, Mercy Urgent Care and Occupational Medicine, we have just shy of 100 employees, and uh, we've been around since 1985. We were actually the first urgent care in Western North Carolina before urgent care was even a thing. So we provide treatment for non-life-threatening illness and injury. And we were formed in 1985 uh, in response to the rising costs of emergency room visits. And uh, to date, we have eight locations across Western North Carolina in addition to an occupational medicine uh, wing uh, that serves employers across the entire Western North Carolina region uh, to make sure that staff uh, who encounter on-the-job illness or injury have a a quick solution to help them get back on the job and uh, reduce, of course, lost time. All of those uh, activities, you you provide those services with only 100 employees. That's right. <laughs> can, you, can you tell us a little bit about some specific initiatives that Mercy, Mercy Urgent Care and Occupational Medicine has implemented for those 100 workers that you have, specifically regarding remote work? How easy or, uh, or difficult was, uh, was it for um, employees to transition from in-person to remote work? And I'm not sure remote work was even a, an option, was it? That's a great question. For some employees, of course, remote work was absolutely not an option. If you're on the front lines of the pandemic and and you're a nurse, for example, you're going to be the person who's swabbing a patient for COVID. And so uh, there are some positions that we knew right away were not going to be able to work remotely. There were plenty of other positions, however, that we knew could work remotely as long as we provided the uh, technology and, and infrastructure to be uh, secure technology from a remote location. So our uh, 
IT organization that, that we work with was integral to helping us make that transition. Of course, from an HR perspective, there was a lot of policy to, uh, to implement some uh, paperwork to, to make sure that, that we had employees signing off on different types of attestations, be it with regards to HIPAA or, uh, you know, telecommuting that we had to get sorted out really quickly because we, we didn't have anybody really working remotely prior to the pandemic. Um, but I have to say, in spite of the fact that we went from zero to remote work for all of our administrative staff, it happened fairly rapidly, as in within a couple of weeks' time, where we were able to source the technology and uh, build that infrastructure just within a couple of weeks and have people effectively working from home. And as far as clinical employees go, like I said, most of them could not work remotely, but one of the ways that we dealt with uh, staffing issues as we had staff who needed to be tested for COVID was we gave them similar technology to work remotely so that if they had a, a laptop, for example, with, with the secure connection and a place in their home that could be uh, private enough that it would be HIPAA compliant, then if a provider were to have to go home because they had a symptom of COVID and were waiting on test results, but they didn't really feel bad, they could uh, perform telemedicine visits from a, a spot in their home, and then the patient could visit the clinic for, uh, for any follow-up treatment. That makes sense. So um, do you find that for the administrative uh, workers that you mentioned that were able to move easily from uh, in-person to remote work, do you have any of them uh, who were really resistant to the idea uh, of working remotely, but now we're, you know, a few months down the road, they see the advantages of working from home. How, how, how do they, um, you know, of course they have adapted, but do you, do you feel, do you see uh, some kind of a reverse behavior, attitude to remote work? So I think the, the biggest resistance in the beginning, and, and I don't think this is unique to us, is will people work as hard or get as much done if they're working remotely than if they were in the office. And fortunately for us, even though, the, and it's a valid question anyone would have, uh, the, the department that so easily was able to transition to remote work, which is our, our business office function, there are key metrics that can easily be pulled to show you whether or not the same level of work or efficiency of work is, is being completed. And I think that's really the critical piece when, when it comes to remote work under any circumstances. Uh, is the expectation clear? Is it measurable? Um, do you have the ability to, to keep track of, of whether or not the, the work is still being done? And of course, we, we already had certain parameters that enabled us to have certain kinds of control on remote work. I mean, we had some stop gaps in place there where if people were working from home, they would still have a similar expectation and we still had a similar ability to check and see whether or not the work was getting done. And what we found was people were quite motivated to work from home. It challenged us to come up with new means of communication that maybe even perhaps built stronger bonds. Yeah, I think, uh, Rachel, it's true across industries. The majority of organizations were really, really reluctant 
prior to the crisis to having their workers work remotely for that same reason. They wanted to make sure that um, you know, they, they would be as productive as in person. And what they realize is that, yes, they work just as hard, if not harder, and longer hours. And so I think it's, it's a catalyst, it's a shift there that, that is um, uh, happening between, you know, in the perception of remote work and potentially making that more permanent and um, perhaps cost saving. Could, did you make any kind of a financial analysis on, on particular cost savings that remote work might facilitate? The obvious cost savings for us would be the overhead of the building that we currently utilize for these jobs that uh, are now working from home. And considering we own the the facility and the space, we could easily rent that space to another lessee and and work remotely and, and not sacrifice the productivity. So it seems to me that any organization that has made the transition to remote work has to be asking themselves at this point, particularly if they were able to successfully transition, why would we incur the additional when we could potentially even uh, bring in revenue from that facility without sacrificing efficiency? Exactly. Yes. So um, we talk a lot about the effects of COVID-19 on workers, uh, but not so much on management, right? So can you talk about the challenges and the opportunities that COVID-19 has presented for uh, executive management, upper management? I'm really glad that you asked this question because this, again, is another impact that I say, could, would say is very difficult to overstate. In our case, what COVID-19 did was turn all of our jobs into seven-day-a-week jobs for quite some time. And our medical director is a really good example of someone who was having to stay abreast of these rapidly changing medical directives, which sometimes meant uprooting policies uh, or processes within a day's time. And, And of course, that happened in all of our respective positions. We were constantly reading and and constantly changing information and, and having to disseminate it to staff quickly so that we could uh, implement it timely. But then I think the more important challenge that we need to talk about that is probably also an opportunity is the psychological challenge of COVID. And I don't think that could be overstated either. You could say that for all of our staff. You're experiencing something that you've never seen before in your lifetime and you don't know the answer to. Nobody studied COVID-19 in med school. And so here you are faced with something and there are changing protocols coming out from uh, the sources that you would rely on to get your information. And the best you can do is roll with it in that time because you've never really experienced this before or studied it. And so that is a level of pressure that I don't know that we could fully appreciate unless we were in that role. But that is the role that our medical leadership and even our medical providers have found themselves in. It presents us uh, as leaders in general, but particularly human resources leaders, is the opportunity to be candid about the human beings that all of us are. And the fact of the matter is that mental health was an issue before COVID, but mental health in light of COVID has become something that's come to the forefront. And it's more critical now than ever before that we are 
candid about mental health, that we take action as leaders to remove the stigma of it so that our employees can get access to the resources that they need. If we don't provide resources as an employer, such as an employee assistance program, that we seek out those resources and that we also allow ourselves to be vulnerable and, and be honest about the fact that helping our employees reduce that stigma by simply being courageous enough to be vulnerable about communicating our own experiences ourselves. Yes, I, I can totally understand that position. I, studying my uh, mental health, specializing in mental health in, in the workplace, I, I get to, I totally understand that. So since we're talking about HR, what permanent HR policies, if any, uh, has your organization uh, put in place as a result of the pandemic? The biggest policy change that I would say has come out as a result of the pandemic for us is the, uh, the Families First Coronavirus Act. And of course, that is, uh, at least now, uh, temporary through December 31st. And that allows for the, the paid sick leave related to uh, being quarantined for COVID testing or a positive COVID result and or pay related to having a lack of childcare in the event that, that your child's daycare or school has been closed. So that is a policy that we want to make sure that we maximize that benefit to the extent we can without it causing us to have to close our doors um, as we have to stay open to the community. Um, some other HR policies that have come about, the other big one I would say is a, a clinical safety policy that has to have on-site staff. And, and this is what, from an occupational medicine standpoint, we've been advising other employers to implement as well, is uh, what we call universal precautions. And in this case, what it means is we have implemented a universal mask policy. If you are in a mercy urgent care facility, you are wearing at least a surgical mask at all times, and you are maintaining at least six feet of physical distance between you and your coworkers and you and your patients to the extent you possibly can for the duration of your shift. And we have also implemented an enhanced cleaning schedule whereby we have, uh, of course, in a medical facility, you have hand sanitizer everywhere. But what we have now, in addition to the hand sanitizer everywhere, so there's a very enhanced cleaning protocol. So we've got social distancing, the universal mask precaution. We have the enhanced cleaning protocol and um, in our processes in the clinic in general, uh, patients uh, change the contact with patients, uh, if a telemedicine visit will suffice uh, in lieu of an in-person visit, then we send them through telemedicine so there doesn't have to be any physical contact. That's for the patient's safety as well as our employee's safety. Of course, yes. And, and of course, you're, you're responsible for the well-being of your employees. So that's, that's part of, you know, your initiatives cover that. Uh, in closing, I'd like to know, Rachel, if, if you have one breakthrough thought or a breakthrough idea uh, about what organization should consider to prepare for a potential future pandemic crisis. And let's hope there won't be one, but we can't be sure of that. So if I had one quote unquote breakthrough idea or revelation that has come of this, at least in my world, I have to say we had a really detailed disaster management plan and it looked so beautiful on paper and we had so many roles outlined and it seemed to be 
the kind of thing that you check the box on every single year. But I have to say, and I think my colleagues would agree with me, it didn't really help us. What we needed to be able to adapt was to have a, a different type of structure whereby you, you essentially had a cross-functional team that could convene easily, uh, that could debrief rather quickly and frequently. So if I were to advise other organizations, including ours, on how to, how to prepare for a possible future pandemic or even really any other disruptive circumstance, is to think about the way we structure our teams instead of, of having written uh, distinct roles um, in, in these rigid, I don't know how to describe it other than, you know, kind of it look, looks good on paper hierarchical structures. And instead of thinking of things that way to think about how would you structure groups so that you get innovation as quickly as possible that's communicated as clearly as possible, because that would in turn prepare you for most anything, be it a pandemic, uh, a disruption to your market, any, anything that would prompt a need for rapid change. How, how can you restructure your organization so you have empowered cross-functional teams that can swiftly innovate? And what kind of systems do you need to set up in advance such that you can deploy that type of resource um, if and when you need to use it? That sounds like a wise piece of advice. Uh, thank you, Rachel. Uh, Rachel Sussman is the Chief Administrative Officer at Mercy Urgent Care and Occupational Medicine in Nashville, North Carolina. Thank you for sharing your experience and uh, insights with us. Thank you again for having me. It's a real, real privilege to be able to speak. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dear Human Resources. In each episode, you will hear about current HR topics and trends from experts, both practitioners and researchers, with the goal of giving you an insider's look at human resources.